0: We are not going to touch on everything that is to say there is so much uh, about the kings of Israel, but we're just going to select uh, a few, <clears throat> a few number of them uh, from scripture and see what we can learn uh, from them. Sorry. Okay. I don't have a lot in way of slides, but... We spoke last time about the kings of Israel. I tried to choose some colors. I hope you can see these colors. What I tried to do here is just to demonstrate roughly the kings of Israel, those that were good and those that were, I can see Sarah is quitting. I'm sorry for the, color, for the colors. They're not very great. But those that are red were not the good kings. They were like the evil kings that God declared as evil. And those that are orange, or yellowish, they're kind of like, some started well, some finished well, some started uh, badly, and then kind of finished well, they're kind of like in the middle, um, a little bit. And then those that are green were the good ones. So from that, you can see for yourself um, how red the nation of Israel Really is. The ones that are on the left were those that were from Judah, and the ones on the right were those that were from from Israel. So you can see these are people that saw God part the sea. These are people that ate manna from heaven, but these are people that were led by a pillar, and by fire by night. These are people who heard the voice of God and quaked, saw the mountains quake. These are people that the, we have the Bible because of them. And yet, when you see the redness that is across all the kings, it's not a pretty sight, isn't it? it's a very, very bad sight. And um, from the right-hand side, on the Israel side of the kings, you can see that there is only, there is no green whatsoever. There's only Jehu who really is kind of like halfway in between, uh, only because he actually is one who dealt with Atalia, who was a woman, who, took, who tried to ex- uh, accept authority. Otherwise, you can see that because the right-hand side, Israel, all red, they went into captivity first uh, before Jude- uh, Judah, who is on the left-hand side. And there were quite some kings uh, after uh, Israel was taken into captivity. But then eventually um, Judah itself was taken into Captivity. So I just, I just put this so that you can see the extent of disobedience amongst uh, the people of God, because the things that we're going to try in the next couple of months or so as we go through this, the things that we're trying to bring out is some of the lessons that we can learn. These things are written for our learning. I believe in that very, very strongly, and, and we, we can learn from these people as we see how God deals with them, and we can see the character of God uh, coming through with all these people. So that's just, just all the signs that I've got. So today, we're going to look at the first king of Israel, uh, Saul. Uh, you find that from uh, Samuel chapter uh, from the book of Samuel, really, almost all of it. You can read it at your own leisure. So we're just going to look at a couple of things. We're not going to touch everything about King Saul, but we're going to look at a couple of things about King Saul and and pray that uh, God bless them to our own hearts and for our own learning. I think we're going to read again from chapter 8 that we read last time, only because I think it's a very pivotal book um, uh, Caution about King Saul, so that we can understand where, what the background is, the circumstances that Israel were in, and how they come about to take the king. So, if we read from uh, verse four of chapter eight, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, "Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy way." Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of the, out of Egypt unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice. Howbeit, you protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And then maybe we we'll flip a couple of pages uh, to chapter ten of Samuel, and verse 17. And Samuel called the people together unto the Lord uh, to Mizpah and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, I brought up up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all the kingdoms and of them that uh, oppress you. And you have this day rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversities and tribulations. And you have said unto him, Nay! but set a king over us. And as always, we we'll trust that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Now let us look at what is happening here. What are the dynamics that are at play here? The person just read in chapter 8, we see Israel coming uh, to Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, and they come with this lie to ask for a king, to demand a king. They come to Samuel saying, look, you are now old, because you are now old, we will need a king. Now, what's wrong with uh, Samuel getting old? Had God run out of power to raise up prophets? No. Even if Samuel had died, there is nothing that would have changed because God would have raised a prophet again for them. He had done that again and again, raising judges for Israel in in, in the previous uh, books. And he has shown them to be faithful. But they come with that lie to say, you are old. And therefore, we want a king. So the motive here is very clear. In fact, when you read in chapter 12, when Samuel rehearses back to them, he mentions something interesting. He mentions to them that when you you saw Nahash, the Ammonite, you demanded, you asked for a king. So it seems behind the scenes what is happening here is, even though, this is why, Perhaps I think scripture is very specific to reiterate what God had done for them. How God had delivered them from the power of their enemies, from their, those that were oppressing them. And it's Samuel repeats and rearses those facts to remind them again. Because when we read in chapter 12, we see that it seems they saw King Nahash coming against them and they became terrified. And they did not trust in the power of God. They did not trust that God would deliver them. And when they looked around themselves, they saw what the other nations had. They had kings. Nehash was a king. So they saw they had kings and they said they trusted in man than trust in God. They believed that a man would deliver them from their troubles. I don't know about you. Who do we go to when we are in trouble? What is our first pot of coal when we are in trouble? Do we trust in man or do we go to God first? How bad should the situation be before we come to God? Saul doesn't build an altar until two years into his reign. God is really an afterthought in his life. What do we do in our lives as believers? Do we put God first? Do we build God's altars first in our lives? Or is it the last thing that we do after we have enjoyed things for ourselves? It seems here that this man, Saul, the people of Israel, they had their priorities upside down They had motives and hearts that were in the wrong places. And there is a very painful statement here that God says to someone. He said, they have rejected me to reign over them. We call our Lord, Lord, don't we? Why do we call him Lord? What does it mean to us to call our Lord, Lord? Does our Lord really reign in our lives? To call the Lord, Lord, what really that means is we are saying the Lord should reign in our lives. The Lord should order our lives. The Lord should tell us how we ought to live. Our lives are submissive to the order of the Lord. That's really what it means to be Lord. It means we are pursuing those things that the Lord wants, not the things that we want. It means we are willing to submit our will to the will of the Lord. I don't know if in your life you have been challenged, but there comes a time in one's experience, and I'm sure you have experienced it, when our will comes into conflict with God's will. When we want something badly that we know is not the best that God has for us, which will prevails? What we see here is that God gives them what they ask. Not because that is what, is what was best for them. The God that we serve is not a tyrant. Sometimes God gave us free will. And there is something here that is amazing about the interaction of God's sovereignty and man's free will. God says to Israel, you want a king. You are rejecting me as your king. You are rejecting me to reign over your lives. You are rejecting my order. You are rejecting to live lives that I ordain for you. Okay, I will give you a king. Sometimes God in his wisdom, out of pain, he will let us have the things that are really not best for us. There are many pains in my life that I know were a result of decisions that I have made. God would have saved me a lot of pain in my life if I had learned to be a good listener and Submit to the lordship of the Lord that I save. So God said, Okay, you want a king, you are rejecting me. I am going to give you a king. It is in this background that Saul comes into the sin. It is very clear from scripture that Saul was not what God wanted for Israel. Saul was what Israel got for themselves. It is very clear here in in chapter 9, when he goes on, Saul says, on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and all thy father's house, speaking of Saul, so there is no doubt that Israel had delighted and desired Saul, it is not God what God had in plan, it had planned for the people of Israel. As Saul comes into the scene, what do we see about this king Saul? A couple of things that we'll talk about tonight. Saul comes from the tribe of Israel. And when Samuel speaks to Saul for the first time and tells him that you are going to be king, he seemingly seems to be humble. And he rightly points out that I am a nobody. I come from the smallest tribe, Benjamin. And indeed, Benjamin is, was only bigger than Manasseh from those that came out of um, uh, out of Egypt, they, were, they had 35,000 uh, men who were 20 years or older. They were the youngest, they were the second uh, smallest group of the tribe of Israel. But seemingly he is a humble person but who is Saul really? What is it that really makes soul tick at first instance you would think that soul was a humble person and sometimes when we encounter people first encounters don't tell the full story isn't it time time reveals the true character of a person When we get, by the time we get to chapter uh, 13, we start to see the true colors of Saul. He has been waiting for the prophet Samuel for seven days. And as he sees Philistines surrounding him, his true colors start coming to the surface. When he was made king, because it was good, it was a good time, he was a humble man. When things are going well, people bring out the best of themselves. Even after he went and destroyed Nahash and People said, where are those people who said will not have soul to reign over us? He seemed to be magnanimous, isn't it? Why? Because it was a victory. Good times. The good times that don't bring out the best of ourselves. The good times don't define our characters. I remember very clearly in the early days of my salvation, the pastor of my church was preaching on Acts chapter 28. Remember Acts chapter 28, the, apostles, uh, the Apostle Paul is on his way to uh, Rome and then they get re- shipwrecked. And then they end up in, a, in, a, in an island with some barbarians. And the Apostle Paul goes to pick up some sticks, some firewood. And as he picks up the firewood, a snake wraps around his, around his, ha- his hand and people think he's going to collapse. a snake he's going to die, but he doesn't. What brought out the snake? The fire. We would not have known about that snake if there was no fire. It is this fire that brought out the reality that was in that firewood. When we meet people, when we meet even believers, professing believers even, in good times, the story is not complete. True character is forged in a fairness. That's when we know who is of the Lord. Those who had seen, those who had seen Saul at his inauguration would think he's a magnanimous man. He's handsome after all, actually. He was taller than the rest, You'd have thought that he was the one that was chosen by God. But no, that is not the full character of the Apostle Paul. Now, what do we see? God had clearly instructed that offerings they belong to priests, Saul was not appointed to perform offerings. Now, after waiting for uh, Samuel for seven days and seeing Samuel not coming as was agreed, he hastily and ill-advisedly performs an offering. What do we do when we are faced with a hard time? He saw the Philistines surrounding him, and he was terrified, and he decided to take things to himself. He decided out of convenience and out of expedience to alter to change the laws of God. God is not changing. In today's days that we are living in, today, we see a lot of expediency And it's sad to say, even within Christendom, we see people changing, editing the word of God to suit expedient circumstances that we are in. It is not popular today to say that sisters cannot take the poppy Every environment that we are in screams at us that we should edit scripture. It is not fashionable to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. Environment that is around us is dictating and forcing us to expediently accept things, edit the word of God. I'm not a pessimist. God can do anything. God today can serve 3,000 people today here at Benjamin just like he did in Acts. I do believe that with all my heart. But the world is determined to make things more and more difficult by the day. The world is determined to do anything and everything to make believers, Bible-believing Christians, to alter the word of God, to conform to what is what the world wants. Another thing that we learn from King Saul is that A nation can be ruined because of the leadership. People can perish because of the leadership. A nation can suffer because they are unwise people in authority. When Jonathan went and discomfited the Philistines and when he came from the victory and so saw the enemies scattering away and he chases after them and he makes a stupid decree. No one should eat. No one should eat. Now you have fighting people and the enemy is running away from you, and you make a decree like that unwisely, ill-advised like that. When Jonathan, who then takes honey because he didn't hear the decree, and is picked out as the reason why Saul did not get an answer. When Saul doesn't get an answer from God, instead of looking at himself, he looks out to blame other people. And when Jonathan is pulled aside, Jonathan utters a very interesting statement. He says, my father has troubled the land. Scripture doesn't tell us everything about uh, uh, King Saul. This is two years into his reign. When you go in chapter 11, and he's destroying Nahash. Israel is planters. But by the time you get to chapter 13, there is not even a sm- an iron smith on land. What has happened? What has happened within a course of two years? Scripture doesn't give us all the details. But the statement of Jonathan, his own son, is very telling. He says, my father has troubled this land. This is not the first time that a soul has caused trouble for Israel. There could have been a huge slaughter of the enemy on that day, but because of his unwise decree, the enemy was spared. Similarly, he did the same unwise decree, an unwise decision, when He made the offering. We should pray for our leaders. We should pray for our leaders because unwise leaders can lead us into a path that would set us into perilous times. In a real sense, we live in very dangerous times right now. I am from Zimbabwe. And I remember in 1980, when we got our independence, no, sorry, 1980, I was two years old, but I remember in the 80s, when I was a little boy, we got our independence in 1980. Zimbabwe was a land of milk and honey. Zimbabwe had good things. I didn't pay to go to school. I didn't pay to go to to the hospital. And there was medicine in hospitals. We didn't buy books when you I went to school you were given a book and if you finish, if your book was full you would go with your old book and they would give you a new one same for pens same for rulers same for rubber, same for mathematical instruments they were given free the school the the country could afford that there were, at school in lunch hours there was food that was provided by the government uh, my mother was a teacher but we went and killed ate Beans. Up to now, I love beans. That's why I started, I, started, I, started, I started testing beans. The country was flowing with milk and honey. And we got a leader. Now, where, where are we? We should pray for our leaders. Because if we get unwise leaders, we might end up in very... Very different circumstances. By the time we get to chapter 15, what do we see? God has told so: go and destroy the enemies of God. And the world say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. What is to you an enemy of god is it our friend should we be friends with enemies of god now i'm not saying we should be nasty people no but should we be associating ourselves with enemies of god god told so Go and kill the Amalekites. The Amalekites, as Israel was coming out of Egypt in chapter 17, they attacked Israel at their weakest point. When they were hungry and thirsty, they attacked Israel. And God told them that I am going to blot out Amalekites. I will not forget this. God's righteous anger on behalf of his people. It just goes to show how much God loved Israel. You touch my people. I am going to destroy you. And now God tells Saul, go and destroy the Amalekites. What does Saul do? He destroys everything that is unprofitable, that he couldn't use for himself. And he keeps that which is the best. And he feigns piety when he's challenged by someone. He feigns piety. And says, Oh, I kept the best to offer to God. Now, here is an important lesson God does not need anything. Does God need our prayers? No. Does God need us to be holy? No. There is no benefit to God about whatever we can do. Strictly speaking, God is all sufficient. God does not lack God is not weak. God does not need help. God does not need anything from anybody, from anything, from anywhere. God owns everything. God owns this planet. God owns the air that we breathe. God owns everything. God is in need of absolutely nothing. Now, there are so things God will be impressed by what he can give him at the expense of what God had said. God has spoken to us in his word. It doesn't matter how many times we walk through that door and come to a church service such as this. If we are living lives that are not obedient to God, God has no need of you to come to church. God has no need of us, but he expects from us to be obedient. Life is full of decisions, 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 decisions. I'm at a juncture where I'm trying to make another prayer. I was praying with my wife last night because we're in a juncture of a major decision that we want to make. And I pray that God helps us, because I don't want to make a decision that is my own. I know from experience that making my own decision always leads me to a lot of pain. I know my Lord will never leave me, but it will always lead to a lot of pain. God does not need me, but God wants me to be obedient. What is stubbornness to God? What is it to God? When we do not do what we know we should do, what is it to God when we do what we know we should not do? What is it to God? How many times should God speak to us about something? If I'm not talking to anybody here, I'm talking to myself. How many times does God speak to us about things that are in our lives? Praise be to his mercy. But God's stubbornness is idolatry. When we think of idolatry, we think about Buddha statues and all those things made of gold and whatever. But scripture tells us a different story. Doesn't it? stubbornness God hates. We should be teachable. I know I'm very slow to apologize and say I am wrong. But the way I was brought up, my background is stiff nakedness. But we should be willing as children of God to be teachable. Now I'm gonna end with this. From the moment that soul tells that Samuel tells soul that God has rejected you. And I don't have evidence for this but I am sure Saul had had as many warnings as many warnings for him to change but he doesn't. Then it comes to a point where God says have it your way Saul doesn't become better when you go to chapter 9 the spirit of god descends on Saul and 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 when when when, Sam, when Samuel anoints Saul scripture says that he gave him men whose heart god had touched and when the spirit of god fell on Saul scripture says god gave him Another heart. And Samuel says to him, You will become another man. But yet, so chose stubbornness and stiff nakedness. This is one of the mysteries that even I, 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 wrestle, I wrestle with myself. I am convinced as I read scripture, that God has done everything possible to save men and women. I am convinced that God, the Lord, has done all that needs to be done for men and women to be saved. Men and women can choose Nonetheless, men and women can refuse the grace of God. And as soul descends into the pit of hard-heartedness, he becomes worse and worse and worse. And worse. I mean, he threatens to kill his own son. He threatens to kill his own daughter. He tries to pin David against the wall. And when women come singing, David killed 10,000, but Saul killed thousands, he becomes angry. This man's heart becomes darker and darker and darker. I think it is of a truth that the longer men and women stay in their stubbornness, God in his sovereignty can break through. God can do anything. But there is a reality, I think a truth of scripture, that as men increasingly become stubborn, as men increasingly become disobedient, as men increasingly become determined to disobey the word of God, God will give you up. And scripture tells us in chapter 16 that God gave soul up. It reminds me of Romans, doesn't it? Does it not remind you of Romans? They desired not to have God in their own hearts. And God gave them up to their own passions. Romans chapter 1. And they went after those things that are unseemly. God gave them up. I praise the Lord that I am saved. I We are very grateful that God will not abandon us. But these are experiences that we should learn. Not because the wrath of God hangs around us, but because we love our Lord so much, we want to learn so that we can become better (coughs) believers. We want to learn so that we don't repeat the mistakes that have already been done before. We want to please the Lord. So seemingly started well and he started very badly. By the time you get to the end, Saul is going to see a spirit medium, a familiar spirit. That word comes from family. It comes from the things that you are naturally familiar with we are not natural people we do not resort to natural solutions to our life circumstances because nature will tell us differently because nature is of this world What is natural to us, what we have experienced, what we are familiar to, is not our wisdom. That's not where we go for our wisdom. We don't go back to remember our former days because we are faced with circumstances of today. We're not them that go back to our vomit. The things that we are familiar with, the things that we are used to, the things that we grew up with. We don't do that. We keep going, pressing on, looking up to the Lord in heaven because we are a spiritual people. We are not people of this world. We are people for heaven. I trust that these simple things um, will challenge your hearts And you can read yourself about the story of of, of soul. It's it's very informative and there's quite a lot more than what I've said that we can learn and practice in our lives. Let us pray. Our precious Lord and our good Savior, we thank you for your word that you've given us to our hands. We thank you, Lord, that you are a patient God. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that triumphs over judgment. We thank you, O Lord, that We are who we are, standing today